0: Join us for our first virtual event of 2021, After Dark, open finance, fact or fantasy? Open finance is still a pretty new concept, but what opportunities and risks does it present? Find out how your business can leverage open finance as we bust some of the biggest myths about this trend at our After Dark event on the 17th of March. Stay tuned for some of the guests who'll be joining us. And register now to save your spot for free at bit.ly forward slash after dark open finance.
1: and welcome to fintech insider insights i'm simon taylor and in today's episode we're going to be talking about cashless societies for years now the popularity of cash has dwindled as digital payments have become faster cheaper and a lot more convenient across the uk sweden china and many parts of the world we're moving closer and closer to a cashless economy but what does it take to build a cashless society is that something we want is it going to be a good thing and also if we're starting from scratch What would the ideal financial system look like? And how do we get from where we are to where we want to be? And would we use cash at all in the future? So many questions. And fortunately, I am joined by some excellent guests. Making a Fintech Insider debut is David Deschamps, who is Senior Vice President of Digital Payments and Labs for MasterCard in Europe. Thank you so much for joining us, David. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Mastercard please?
2: Yes hi it's great to be here with you today. So my job at Mastercard is basically to enable new types of payment use cases by collaborating and partnering with big techs like you know Amazon, PayPal,
1: Spotify and the likes. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like an exciting job. New types of payments and interesting collaborations. Also joining us for the first time, we have Joseph Haj, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Swish. Thank you so much for joining us, Joseph. Could you tell us a little bit about Swish? Probably one of the best-kept secrets in the rest of the world, but uh, really exciting what you guys do.
3: Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm Joseph Haj Chief Strategy Officer with Swish and responsible for corporate strategy, strategic partnerships, and internationalization here. For those that don't know, Swish is a mobile payment service. So we are owned by the six largest banks in Sweden, whom have basically built an app collectively to handle payments, both on the P2P side, but also on the merchant side and a number of different use cases. So today we have 7.6 million users. So that's 94% of the Swedish population. And we did last year 620 million transactions, all on account-to-account trails, as we call it. And coming into this podcast, I think it's super interesting because we're on a cashless journey in Sweden, even before Swish was launched in 2012, and Swish has sort of accelerated that trend to where we are today, basically.
1: Exciting. And what a case study for us to try and unpack later on. And thank you so much for joining us, Joseph. Last, but by no means least, we have Nadia Costanzo, who is the head of banking and expansion for MEA and LATAM at TransferWise. Thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, For those who don't know, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do over at TransferWise?
4: Yeah. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So I lead our banking and expansion efforts in Middle East Africa and Latin America. So what that means really is bringing TransferWise to market markets where we're not already offering our services in, or in parallel, supporting TransferWise to deepen our product offering into those markets. So kind of what our team does, we, we work on two major work streams, I would say. And on the one hand, we do a lot of regulatory work. So, you know, scoping out license opportunities, deciding what markets to go into, applying for new licenses, working with regulators, et cetera. And then on the other hand, financial institution partnerships. So working with either banks or payment service providers, whoever it might be to essentially enable our payment rails into new markets.
1: Nadia, there's a lot of things that that can mean for people who are working in different parts of the world, who want to remit, who want to move money around. And we know we're increasingly becoming a global society. I know the pandemic may have slowed that down, but still, those things are so, so crucial to people and moving money every day when we can't handle physical cash is so, so important. And Having digital solutions becomes really key. I am excited to get into this topic with you guys. Let's start from the very beginning, though. David, I would love your views on how do we even define a cashless society or a cashless economy? And are those different things?
2: Well, I, I guess that you know, there is probably a difference between the two, in my opinion, uh, because as far as a cashless society is concerned, I believe that this requires financial inclusion to reach a very high level, right? So we will hear, of course, about Sweden, which is indeed one of, of the most advanced countries. But you know, let's not forget that uh, around the world, we still have a massive number of people who are unbanked. So while you know we may have a lot of options out there, you know, to conduct electronic payments, I think it's fair to say that uh, beyond the technology that is, of course, very important as an enabler, I think that inclusion and education is also what makes a cashless society something that could work, right? And let's face reality: there are still major gaps there, and uh, the crisis we are going through at the moment, of course, th- does not help, right? Because the what you could call the digital divide, is increasing uh, with some people being excluded from digital means and therefore from digital financial instruments as well.
1: David, I think that was a great definition and I think a great point to the the next question, which is going to be, why do we want cashless? Um, Joseph, I mean, obviously your experience is very much in your own market, but how do you think about the points David made just then?
3: Yeah, I fully agree to those points. I mean, it's it's sort of a luxury for us, at least here in Sweden, to be able to even talk about cashless society and so on. Everyone is banked here, at least. And that's the fundamental basics for this to be applicable. And then also, I think here in Sweden, at least most, even on the elder population side, most elderly are quite digitally native. So if you look to Swish, people between 65 and 85, more than 60% of them use Swish as their main way of paying you know so i think that that's more of a symptom of how people behave and how digitally advanced even the elderly population is here
1: i think that's interesting joseph that to really build on what david was saying that the digital literacy of a population is so so crucial to be able to kind of get that but then if we have some digital literacy or we don't why do we want to go cashless like why is it such an aim in sweden and why is it an aim elsewhere to become cashless
3: So I think that there's a number of angles to this. The first one is simplicity. I personally don't see the need of going to an ATM machine, withdrawing cash to use them somewhere else. So I think what we see here, at least both on the merchant side and on the user side, so on the market side, people just see the benefits of not having cash and instead use cards or Swish or other means of payments also being enforced by the growth of e-commerce where cash is by definition sort of not applicable. That's one. and then I think also in terms of efficiency in general, from a macro perspective, like and this comes into you know monetary policy from central banks and so on. in Sweden, for example, the cost of handling cash is on the commercial banks. and this was a policy decision in 2005 where it moved from the central bank to commercial banks and commercial banks having taken this cost now are incentivized basically to reduce it. And just by having that incentive, we all know banks are quite efficient in reducing costs. So they started printing cards, pushing them out there. They created Swish to reduce the use of cash and so on. So, I think those two angles would be quite interesting to explore. Like, one is the efficiency side? The other one is, in my opinion, at least, the logical chain of, of thoughts that would lead you to think that a digital payment is easier for me as a user and merchant, basically.
1: Mm. Nadia, I want to just get your views from other markets. I mean, obviously, Sweden has a good amount of financial literacy, but it's not true everywhere. And, and cash is actually something that people use on a day-to-day basis. There's a level of trust, but there's also a level of inclusion there. I wonder what your thoughts are.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it stems from behaviors and just knowledge and understanding of why, you know, cash is, is what it is. And the benefits of not having cash, right? So I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that. They don't see that. They see it as a burden. Most importantly, they see it as costly. So accounts can be very costly. They can be very difficult to have access to. But there, there's so many benefits that are not properly communicated to them in terms of, as what Joseph was saying, the convenience of you know, using cards or other digital forms of payment. There's also security. I would say this is, is relevant everywhere. But I think specifically in some of the more emerging markets, you know, we see Security being a huge issue for people who are either saving in cash, you know, the typical, you know, money under the bed kind of situation, or, you know, people just walking home late at night with a lot of cash. Obviously, like people, you know, it allows for better financial planning, etc. But even from a more financial institution or regulatory perspective, again, as Joseph was saying, managing cash is really costly, and that is always passed on to the consumer, right? So even though banks are absorbing that cost technically, that's actually going to be passed on to the consumer, and so it's going to effectively be more expensive for consumers to operate with cash. And then there's, of course, other benefits like preventing tax evasion, money laundering, etc.
1: So there's a bunch of long-term and short-term benefits to both the consumer and, and I guess, to the wider society. But David, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, what I
2: wanted to say is that I don't think we should consider that replacing 100% of cash is a goal as such, right? What I think uh, we are all here about is to really offer solutions, payment solutions in particular that are adapted, you know, to what people expect. So I think it's about providing choice to the consumers and making sure they have all the right options. It's striking, by the way, to, to, to see that even in the UK, 47% of the people, they do not want a cashless society, right? So I think people will always consider cash as a, as a fallback payment method. But everybody agrees uh, you know, with the emergence of touch-free payments you know, with the COVID, for example, that contactless cards and, and uh, mobile are a great thing. Also with the rise of e-commerce, of course, this is typically an area where you can only work with digital payments. So to me, it's more a matter of you know, having the right solution for the right use case.
1: I think that right solution, right use cases is is super interesting. Some good stats here that producer Laura and Olivia put together from how uh, different countries have reacted. Sweden is expected to become the first truly cashless society in 2023, and according to YouGov, three quarters of Swedes say they mostly didn't use cash before the pandemic and still don't. And then in the UK... Before the pandemic, one in 10 adults are choosing to live a largely cashless life. In China, proximity mobile payment users grew by 10% in 2019 to reach 577 million. And the number of electronic payment transactions in Nigeria grew from 66 million in 2008 to over 2 billion in 2018. Joseph, this is a trend that's happening, but it's it's not the same everywhere. What factors would you put down to that? Is you know, technology a part of it? And David hit on financial literacy. Are there other things as well that sort of really enable a society to move in that direction?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think Nadja touched on it before as well. Security is one super important aspect of this. Uh, Technology is one. Financial literacy is one. Those are sort of the obvious, but, but I think trust is the fundamental piece that has to be there for you to be cashless. Like There needs to be trust in the financial system, in the institutions, in the authorities monitoring the system in general. And there needs to be trust that these authorities will not misuse the information the transaction is data, right? And someone holds that and someone can always review that. And this is a problem. We see that particular, I think uh, David mentioned in, in the UK, a lot of people don't want cash to be removed. And if we look at, at a market like Germany, for example, that's even stronger. So there is a cultural aspect to this as well that, that boils down to trust, I think. And that's look at how we've handled the COVID pandemic here in Sweden too. There are no laws. There are no rules. There are just guidelines, The government puts out there and then people basically follow them because there is such a strong trust in the system in general and that's i think what we see in terms of cashless that's trust in the system is sort of fundamental for this to work
1: yeah the trust point nadia is a really good one i suppose to build on
4: yeah i would say that the element of trust is really really important and i think it's so important because Financial institutions have often shown that they're not trustworthy in the sense of hiding fees or charging these exorbitant fees to customers without them really understanding what those fees are. And so I think it's really important for us to push a lot towards transparency and for regulators to push for transparency of financial institutions. So otherwise, The consumers are never going to trust you if, you know, and we see that a lot within TransferWise, but I mean, I would say it's pretty, you know, across the board in any type of financial institution. If you are making a transaction and certain fees are being deducted without really your knowledge or understanding why, why would you trust a financial institution?
1: Mm, it's interesting when a consumer has the cash in their hand, it doesn't feel like there's anything being clipped off it, even though the costs are hidden, as you said earlier, Nadia. But also that ability to budget and that sense of control is really physical and present in a way that with digital, it's it's really hard to replicate. Certainly when 11FS has worked with and done customer interviews, that sort of sense of control and budgeting and that comfort comes up so often from consumers. We are just going to take a quick break here whilst we give a shout out to our sponsors and we shall be right right back so thank you so much to our sponsors
0: this episode is brought to you by jack henry digital the pioneers of personal digital banking they are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal human-centered service that puts the customer first your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based core connected tools to offer service at the moment of need To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com.
1: Thank you so much. And let's get back on with the show. David, I want to sort of pick up with you and talk about the different regional variances here in things like regulation and compliance and accessibility. How much does the role of the state kind of impact what can be done with cashless? We obviously saw India has tried to demonetize. What are your thoughts on different state approaches?
2: Yeah, it's very interesting times. Uh, That's a very critical point indeed. If you look a little bit at everything that's going on, you know, all across the world, regulation is definitely a very hot topic, right? In Europe, we have had a number of regulations. We are in the middle of this PSD2 implementation that that impacts a lot of the players in the market in a significant way. And to your point, I mean, we see regulations in India, in, in Russia, in China, in the US as well for us as a global organization this is a challenge of course uh, because uh, we need to comply with all of them and sometimes they are conflicting but at the end of the day you know we have to deal with that and we still welcome regulations when you know the goal is to set a framework that brings that trust that Joseph was talking about so i fully agree with him when you talk about payments right we're talking about people's money right so they want to be reassured and so on so You know, you have regulatory frameworks that can really help build this trust. So that's most welcome. But very often, regulations uh, also come with a number of constraints. So the challenge is really, okay, how far should the regulations go, right? You have some regulations that set a number of principles that make a lot of sense and then rely on the industry to bring solutions that comply with that framework. In some instances, you have regulations that go far beyond that and, and that impose a number of uh, details. And we think that this is where you know, it becomes really a break to innovation in, uh, in the market as well.
1: And I think that innovation is so crucial. Nadia, you mentioned just before we broke as well about some of the hidden fees and the consumer level innovation, but what other areas are there blockers to building that system for cashless economies?
4: There's, I would say, a few kind of key areas and a lot of it has to do with what David was just mentioning about regulation. And I I think sometimes it's how regulators view, for example, access to accounts or access to digital means of payment. I'll give you an example. In some places, you need to be physically present at a bank branch to be able to open an account, right? And this is either a legal requirement or a requirement by the financial institution. So I would say it comes on both sides. And if you, for example, live in a very rural location where there's no banks nearby, how are you going to, I mean, good luck, how are you going to open that account, right? But sometimes even just the requirements in terms of the type of documentation that you have to have, the ID, you know, the, the minimum fees, as, as I was kind of mentioning before, it's going to be very difficult to open accounts or to open things that will allow you to access these forms of payment. And so I think it's very intrinsically linked both regulation and the kind of rules or, or policies of financial institutions. And then. There's also the idea that some financial institutions don't have the technology, even if regulations are free and and open, sometimes it's hard for financial institutions to onboard customers digitally, right? So the digital verification processes, for example
1: absolutely so it's super interesting that we've kind of identified that there's this really key area around financial literacy and consumer understanding there's also the attitude in terms of do do i actually want to adopt this cash do i trust um everything that's happening there there's the policy conversation about actually is this an environment that would enable it and then lastly there's the technology question of can the providers in my market actually achieve this i'd be interested joseph from your perspective What do you think it was about Sweden across all four of those sectors? So like the consumer attitude, the policy and the technology. What do you think it was in those three? Do you think Sweden's
3: been lucky on all those three or was there something intentional? I'm not sure it was intentional per se, but there was definitely, you know, we've done some research on this, just, you know, looking at policies for going cashless and and a number of different central banks and, and policymakers have published an external opinion on this and some have not, or some have even, so we classify it as being neutral, being positive or being negative, meaning that as a policymaker or a government institution or whatever, I am reluctant to push a cashless agenda. The other one being, I haven't published my opinion at all. And the third one being, I am positive and actively driving this type of agenda. I would say that from the Swedish point of view, we were quite positive early on. So in 2005, as I mentioned, the Swedish central bank pushed the cost of handling cash onto the banks, not because they couldn't afford having the the cost themselves. I think the cost at that point was roughly hundred million euro equivalent, but they pushed that to the banks to create incentives based on the policy of becoming cashless to a higher extent. Once they did that, banks started pushing cards. They solved the, the P2M solution. So as a user, I can buy goods and services with a merchant without using cash and then solve the acceptance point as well. So merchants can now accept payments to cards and set up a number of regulations to do this. One being, as a merchant, I am required to have a cash system. Even if I only accept cash, I am required to have a cash system. And that also pulls down the barriers of accepting cards And then the Swedish banks also solved the P2P side by implementing Swish, the service that I work for. And now you have basically all fronts being able to be digital. That in combination with us having a digital identification solution early on that was broadly used, we shouldn't forget that either. So coming back to security, the transaction in its core, in its nature, was secure from the get-go. So now we're talking about strong customer authentication in Europe. We started this in 2004 in Sweden. So I think all of these things coming together is sort of lucky, but I don't think it's super coincidental either. There was both commercial drivers from banks and from institutions and policy drivers uh, as well, aligning towards where we are today.
1: I love all of those ingredients that you've laid out there to make the perfect cashless cake. The one that stuck out to me is the stuff around incentives. Incentives really matter. And historically, some actors like banks who were making interchange had an incentive to move people towards cards. But when the interchange cap came in Europe, I wonder how much that sort of went away a little bit, but it's it's still very much there. But the incentives for all of the other businesses, then the policies, and then also some of the other things. We've we brought up the big I identity. Of course, India has ADAR, China has its own identity solution that's centralized but of course across a lot of Europe David we see that there are identity solutions around bank ID and, and other places how integral is an identity solution that can be used alongside a cashless system
2: yeah if you think about it a payment is first of all an identification system in the first place right uh, you need to because we coming back to to joseph's point about trust, if you exchange money with someone else, you want to be sure that the person you, you give the money to is you know who he or she pretends to be. And the same goes for the person sending the money, right? So this is at the heart of all the complications people are not always aware of, but this is absolutely critical. If you take a simple chip and pin transaction, what happens when you tap your card on the terminal or when you insert your card in a terminal I mean, there is a complex exchange of digital signatures to make sure that the card is genuine and that the terminal is genuine. This is also, you know, a sort of elaborated identification system. But what is uh, absolutely critical is indeed that the person who holds that card or that terminal is also a legitimate layer in the system. And again, people are not conscious of this, but this is where all the complexity of payment systems come in, right? Because... You need indeed to be uh, properly identified by your bank. There is a reason for this because, you know, you don't want your bank account to be compromised, right? So everything in payments turns around that idea of, you know, making sure this identification works and uh, that we establish trust between the sender and the receiver of money and all the technologies that we use. Are really meant to uh, to make sure that this happens as smoothly as possible, of course.
1: Absolutely, that sort of experience then becomes really, really crucial. Nadia, what are your thoughts here? Do you agree with what David's saying?
4: Absolutely, this is something that we deal with at Transferwise every single day. Right, we kind of we have a huge team that specifically focus on verifying customer identity and without the ability to do that digitally for example we would not be existing as a business we've seen blockers in certain countries to onboard you know business senders or even personal senders from being able to onboard with us because they can't by regulation onboard in a digital way so you know we have both our internal systems as well as we work with external providers who have you know really advanced technologies to be able to not only verify identification, but the people's liveliness to, you know, fit into the local credit bureaus, whatever it might be to essentially ensure that these people are real. And, you know, as as David was mentioning, that we can trust them and that this is actually who they are. But we've seen definitely in many countries so many blockers, you know, from you have to go present your passport in person or whatever it might be, it's, that we just it just blocks the business from growing.
1: And this reminds me of Joseph's point then, really, of, of that identity piece, but also those other ingredients around incentives and then sort of literacy and, and many other pieces of regulation, policy and so on that are all supportive. But it's interesting then that Sweden, having got as far as it's got, uh, the Riksbank has also done a lot around uh, central bank digital currencies, and it's really looking mm-hmm. at that. whole space joseph what are your thoughts on that as a subject do you think that's realistic in the short term do you think that's just airy fairy pie in the sky stuff or is there a real intent there
3: yeah absolutely i think this is super interesting i personally of course follow this very closely yeah so i think one interesting aspect of this and i'm not sure if, if the rest of the guys here agree so we ask ourselves first what is cash so cash is sort of the physical denomination of a currency right to some extent and what says that this has to be in physical shape right? So a central bank can issue three types of money. It can issue cash, it can issue central bank money to banks, and then those banks can convert that into kind of business money by leveraging a 7 to 10x multiple on mortgages and so forth. So cash in Sweden, again, does not exist in relation to GDP. Cash in circulation is less than 1.5%. I personally have worked in the financial space my whole career. I don't even know how cash looks like. So that doesn't exist. So how how can a central bank, such as the Riksbank in Sweden, maintain control and still keep the role of issuing money to the public? And what the Swedish central bank is, is looking at now is issuing the e-krona, as it's called, so a digital currency that is accessible to the general public. So basically, it should be the exact same rulebook as cash as we define it today, only it is digital. So as a, as a user or as an individual, your claim with your money is with the central bank, not with your commercial bank. So it acts and behaves the same way as physical cash, except it's just not physical. So this is super interesting, I think, to see where this goes. And in, in Uruguay, Canada, there's a couple of other countries that are looking into the same and actually have come a bit further, I believe, than we have in Sweden.
1: Yeah, I think the Bahamas has a live pilot and, and many other places around the world. And I know China's got a very active pilots with DCEP, digital currency, electronic payment. I'm interested in your views on this, David, and, and also not just on central bank digital currency, but also potentially inclusion aspects there as well, if, if we can pivot between those two topics.
2: Yes, it's very interesting to see what happens When Facebook announced that they would uh, step into this space, right? I I think it came as a shock, you know, to many people, including people at central banks, that uh, an organization that's global like Facebook with, uh, what, 2 billion users, I think, these days, that they would uh, enter that space. And if you think about it from their perspective, it's, yeah, it's kind of logical, right? And it makes a lot of sense uh, because they are, I mean, their mantra is really to include people in, you know, through their social network and so on. So, and, you know, managing payments and exchange of currencies is some sort of natural expansion of their activities. So this is where I think it came as a wake-up call, I think, to many people uh, in, in various places who started thinking, okay, we have talked about, you know, Bitcoins uh, for a long time, but more as a sort of, you know, a thing for geeks and so on. Maybe it's time to look at this much more closely, right? So you see at the moment an acceleration in this space, and as Joseph mentioned, a lot of central banks are now looking very seriously into this. So I think it's now a matter of years before this becomes more mainstream. But as usual, I would say, like I said in my previous comments, that serves probably a part of the population for specific use cases. It's one additional choice that will be made available to to people. It does not mean, in my opinion, that this will replace everything else, right?
1: David, I think that's a good point. There's no panacea here. There's no one solution like with a patient who may be ill. The diagnosis and the treatment may be very different depending on what ails them. And same, you know, if I have a hammer, things start looking like a nail and we've got to avoid that for sure. I'm interested in Nadia's perspective on sort of central bank digital currencies and stable coins and that whole topic. Is this something that's crossing the radar of your users? Is it something that they're asking to use? Does it solve a problem for them or is it still a ways off in, in a lot of the markets you look at?
4: I'm not sure whether I'd say that users are necessarily asking for central bank digital currencies or whatnot. I think, again, especially in emerging markets, I think it's a bit different. But one thing that I have seen and very recently is central banks actually being very much anti- Digital currency. So, cryptocurrency being a very obvious example. We've actually recently seen Nigeria banning kind of financial institutions from interacting with any crypto companies because of the inflows of remittances into Nigeria that were all going through crypto and was essentially bypassing the formal channels. So, therefore, it was devaluating the Nigerian Naira. So in some ways, yes, the consumers are asking for it because we do see like demand for typical money remit services going down in favor of crypto in certain markets. But then on the converse, we see central banks reacting towards that in maybe a negative way.
1: Mm, interesting. Joseph, do you think it's public sector versus private sector? Or do you think these things can, can come together in an ideal world as you look at the Swedish example?
3: I hope so. But and I think they can actually in Sweden. But I think what we need to realize is, you know, we're not in space here. Where we are, we're part of the same planet, right? So so Swedes travel, companies accept payments from non-Swedes, our institutions send money across border, and so on. So I think we need to put this in perspective. So even if it would work domestic, it needs to work globally as well. So we are struggling with that as well with Swish. Like so many of our users, and I would love to pick your brain on this, uh, Nadia. So many of our users are struggling with, you know. I have Swish, everyone has Swish, but I want to use Swish to send money to my friend abroad, or uh, I want to use it to pay abroad and so on. So this is where we cannot think as a silo, but we need to think globally and reach some kind of global acceptance.
1: It's interesting, when we saw this historically, there's been two models. There's been networks that work globally. MasterCard is one fantastic example. There are there are many others. Swift, of course, the network of, of interbanks. But also, we see this other model emerging that's, that resembles the internet itself, that in its early days is hard to use, is mostly for nerds, is looking a bit unregulated and a bit unsecure. Possibly even like Wikipedia, you can't really cite the thing. You have to use Microsoft and Carter, which is the commercial product, And then one day suddenly you start trusting Wikipedia. And I want to move us to looking into the crystal ball now a little bit, David. What do the next couple of years look like in, as, as you look around the world? Do you think attitudes are changing towards cashlessness? And, and do you think the cross-border piece is, is going to be key to that?
2: I think the cross-border piece has been key for uh, for a long time. It's probably much more limited these days, of course, with, uh, with the restrictions on, on travels. But yeah, I, I think what uh, what we see, I mean, I think the, the world has never evolved as quickly as it it does these days. And in the payment space, it's it's also true. What we believe in is, again, consumer choice. What we believe also in is that if you bring a new payment solution to the market, it must really respond to an actual need, right? Because the technology enables a lot of things these days, right? And you and, and, uh, you have a lot of great initiatives out there. The question is sometimes hey, but what kind of problem are you solving by bringing this to the market, right? Because bringing a new payment means and bringing it at scale in a market, that takes a lot of time to build the the trust we we mentioned before. It takes a lot of money as well, you know, to to gain uh, adoption. If you don't actually solve a real problem, I think it will simply not happen. We believe, yeah, there are are still spaces, you know, where we, we can adapt payment solutions to new use cases. When it comes to face-to-face payments, we still believe that cards have a, a very bright future because, you know, for example, we increased the contactless limits in 42 countries uh, at the start of the COVID crisis and we now have in Europe 80% of the transactions that are contactless. So, we have really adapted quickly to the to the situation. And we have seen a, an absolutely enormous momentum on contactless usage, even in countries which were lagging behind. But it doesn't mean that there are not alternative payment means that, that would be relevant. But to me, yeah, making sure that whatever you bring to the market makes sense uh, and responds to a real need is important. All the rest, you know, infrastructure discussions, whether it's a SWIFT, MasterCard, Visa, Swish something else, behind the scenes me this is more ab 2 b kind of uh, discussion but uh, the first thing i believe is to really uh, look at you know what problem do you really solve by bringing new payment
1: means to the market i think it's always good to orient around problem solving Joseph. if you wanted to jump in there on customer problems
3: yeah no i fully agree and coming back to nadia's point before as well with the example from nigeria you know if these legacy infrastructures on settlement and regulations prohibit a user to do a cross-border payment then they will find means to do that. And then if they do that through Bitcoin or any other type of digital currency, then they will. And in this case, as I understood, the Nigerian government put a stop to it, but then there will be other ways to do it. So I think the user decides in the end and the role of the regulator is to make sure that they still have a choice as long as it's safe, as it's legal, and that it's sort of trustworthy. I think that's really, really key.
1: And I think that's such a good point, Joseph, in that typically the reason cash was so used was because a lot of the official routes were, were not solving those problems for people. And people were staying in cash for that exact reason. So by banning something that has come along mm-hmm. and solved their problems, even though it may have a policy implication, you may also be harming your population. And this is such a a difficult balance. Nadia, I want to get some final thoughts from you. Where do you think we're heading with all of this over the next two, three years? What do you think the big trends are?
4: I would say, you know, we still have a long way to go, but I think there's so many players coming up, you know, whether it's fintechs or even large companies like MasterCard, et cetera, who are really focusing on moving us towards a more cashless society and solving really these customer needs. I think with COVID, you know, we've seen that this is a huge need, you know, people can no longer interact with cash. So, I don't know whether, you know, we'll move in the direction of new currency types, etc., you know, kind of the digital currencies, but I do think that more and more people will be more aware and amenable to using digital forms of payment so you know like even in places where it's not really as typical we do see that there has been increases in demand for receiving money in accounts or mobile wallets etc so i'm not sure exactly how the development of you know new currencies will go but i definitely think people will be much more keen on not using cash
1: indeed so that seems to be trending that way how about you joseph
3: yeah, I see a lot of initiatives around the world from the BIS and from a number of you know uh, institutional players trying to fix the cross-border problem, and I think that's really, really key for us to become truly cashless. At least, you know, from a European point of view, I personally, when I travel outside of Europe, I always use cash because that's the easiest way to do it. Like, there's a two-sided market there. It's the user, and then this the acceptance side. There needs to be an ecosystem that facilitates this. And I think cross-border has been a big thing for us where we see a number of initiatives coming up. I think one thing that would be, we're coming to the end of this podcast, but one thing that could be interesting to explore as well is, you know, a contingency plan. Basically, once you become cashless, what happens in, I'm an old soldier, so what happens in, in, in case of war, in case of natural disaster, if you don't have cash? And this is sort of a maybe a philosophical question in one way, but I think that's super interesting to explore. And I think that this is a question that institutions will have to answer before we can become truly cashless. And coming back to the trust side, my dad, for example, he still has cash embedded in his mattress, Not because he uses it, but you know, he's like, Yeah, what if we get struck down by this uh, country? Or what if there's a nuclear disaster and my car doesn't work? I need to be able to be safe. And this is a question that will be posed before we can become truly cashless. I believe.
1: We've got to have something that still works in an apocalypse scenario. I guess, uh, Cash does quite well, doesn't it? It's really quite the thing to be attacking. David, what are your thoughts as you look at the next two to five years? Where, where do you think we're headed? I believe that
2: payments will be increasingly embedded into a broader commerce user experience and almost become transparent to the users. That's true already online, but if you if you look at it, you know, if you look at various initiatives in the retail sector, you see that they want to get rid of standalone checkout process. They want to make the whole user experience as smooth as possible. So I think that's a key trend. This relies heavily on the digitization of payments. And then I, I fully agree with Joseph. The second trend is probably that we have to watch this very carefully because we see also cybersecurity increasingly as a threat, right? So we need to address this and we need to to be well protected because that's a systemic risk that we see at the moment. As you can imagine, we spend a lot of time, money and resources on this ourselves. We are, by the way, we are now a systemic player and regard it and regulated as such. So we are under scrutiny for, for this reason. But this is something that keeps us awake at night, I would say. Cybercrime, which is a rising concern
1: indeed if you have a globally significant infrastructure then it going down as, as joseph said becomes mission critical for, for the organizations that are running that david joseph nadia what a discussion i could keep going forever on this there are so many rabbit holes that you brought up that we didn't run down that i could just keep on going with but that is about all we've got time for so thank you so much for joining me where can people find out more about you and what you do and your companies uh, let's start with david
2: you can find me on LinkedIn, of course. You can also find me on Twitter at
1: David underscore Duchamp. Fantastic. And Joseph?
3: Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Joseph Haj. And we just purchased the .com URL, so I hope it works, swish.com. Otherwise, it's
4: swish.nu, but try the swish.com. Uh,
1: it certainly sounds like it's going to happen fast, swish.com. Love the honor onomatopoeia there. Nadia, how about you?
4: Personally, you can find me on LinkedIn. And then for any information on TransferWise, just transferwise.com
1: and you can find me at sy taylor on twitter or simon taylor on linkedin thank you so much for listening if you like this show if you like any of the stuff that we do please remember to just hit that subscribe button it's right there and it helps us so much and if you're feeling really really good today please leave us a review it helps us make the show better and it helps others find the show too so go on leave us a review you know you should all right and if you want to join the conversation please find us on social media search for 11fs authentic insider or email podcast at 11fs.com thank Thank you so much as always, goodbye for now.